All right, well, good morning and greetings to each one of you. Um, I'll just make a couple of comments before I dive into the sermon here. Uh, first of all, it's just flat, a gorgeous snow. Um, I can look out the window and see it on the trees and so forth, and it is, it's beautiful, and I'm very grateful for that. And I'm also grateful that we can meet in this way. Um, I thought about it. Uh, this morning that, you know, a year ago, we would have simply canceled service. Um, this year, uh, we're able to meet in this way, even though it's not the same as in person, at least we are, uh, are gathering in some form this morning. <clears throat> I'll just mention one other thing, and this is a minor thing maybe, but um, I know that Probably most of you don't much enjoy seeing just a bunch of numbers or uh, letters on the screen. Uh, if you're on a computer, if you right click on uh, the, the person that you want and click pin, it puts that person, uh, that screen uh, fills the entire screen. And so you can see better what's going on. And uh, it's just a little trick that is helpful uh, when you're using Teams here. So. Just wanted to mention those things before we uh, get started here. <clears throat> I am continuing in 1 Corinthians this morning, and um, obviously uh, this is different than if we're meeting in person, and so I, I pray that uh, I can communicate what the Lord has been laying on my heart uh, in relation to this. And so... Um, I would encourage you to get your Bibles out and to follow along and to uh, maybe even take some notes as to what you are thinking or what you uh, learn from uh, this passage in, in 1 Corinthians this morning. <clears throat> as I have mentioned previously, um, the church in Corinth was a modern day a combination, if you will, um, culturally, of Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and New York City. And it was a city about the population of Washington, D.C. Um, and Paul began this letter to the young church there by focusing on the importance of unity and not setting up leaders and teachers as uh, the role models by which they emphasize di the differences in style or approach and content, but rather that focusing on Jesus who unifies believers. Then in chapter 5, Paul addressed the flagrant sin of incest in the church, urging them to take immediate and decisive action on removing this unrepentant member from their church. And so this morning I want to continue and look at chapter 6, where Paul addresses two other problems in the church. And while at first glance, these two issues uh, may seem very unrelated, I do believe there's a common thread and some lessons for us to learn from um, this portion of Paul's letter. And then another thing is we're reading through 1 Corinthians 6. I want you to take note on the number of questions that Paul asks in this chapter. Uh, it's unique from his other uh, chapters. And so uh, I counted 13 distinct questions, and uh, there's a number of them that are simply back-to-back. -back. And I believe that he's really wanting the uh, believers to stop and think about these issues carefully. 
excuse me. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians 6, <clears throat> I'm going to read through this. Um, this morning I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, there are a few differences in a few words and so forth, and also sentence structure in various translations, but, um, but I believe that uh, the English Standard Version uh, is a good choice for us to read from this morning, and so I'm, I'm going to read it at this time. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. For such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. <clears throat> so to start out with, um, I'm going to cover this a bit differently than I do sometimes. I'm not going to go through here verse by verse or whatever, <clears throat> but rather I'm going to focus on these two specific problems and just kind of uh, talk through the type of, of things that Paul is covering here in this letter, and then uh, come back and see what the common thread is as well. 
I do have uh, some slides I'm going to show this morning um, just to kind of help follow along and, and so forth, and I hope that'll be helpful. So the first problem is the lawsuits between believers, and that's found in verses 1 through 8. Um, Paul is clearly addressing an issue that is here going on within the church. But I find it interesting that he's not advocating for disciplinary action by the church like he had in the last chapter. And that's true for both of these problems that he identifies in this chapter. He, it's not that it's not a concern of his, but he's not re asking the church or uh, calling for disciplinary action. The Greek culture was known for its judicial system and its was very prominent in that society. A lot like America is known for its number of attorneys and the amount of lawsuits and the litigation that goes on here. But Paul is calling the believers in Corinth to step back and think about these kinds of issues from a kingdom perspective, rather from an earthly perspective. He's not dismissing the court system as irrelevant or useless. What he is saying, he's making the case that believers should find ways to resolve their disputes uh, among themselves rather than relying on non-believers to do so for them. And we don't really know what kind of disputes Paul's referring to here, but it seems that many of them were probably rather minor disputes, the type of thing that might be settled like in a small claims court today. And so what does it say about a Christian brother or sister who's unable or unwilling to settle those kinds of differences among themselves and involving the court system? For one thing, it communicates to unbelievers that being a Christian really makes no substantive difference in the way one lives their life. It's no different than those that are non-Christians. And I literally cringe at times when I read headlines about a so-called Christian or a church suing another believer or a church or, or Christian organization, because regardless of the outcomes of those kinds of cases, the name of Christ is being tarnished, and the testimony of Christians and the church is damaged. And the most recent one that I recall is when Jerry Falwell Jr., filed a lawsuit against Liberty University claiming they ruined his reputation when they fired him. While this case was later dropped, it did make national headlines at the time. And you know that action simply validated in some people's minds, maybe a lot of people's minds, that Christianity is a sham and is no different from any other religion. Um, Paul here is urging the Corinthian believers likely most of them were Gentiles, to quit taking these matters to the courts, but rather utilize the brotherhood to hear and resolve these kind of disputes privately and in a God-honoring way. In some ways, it seems like Paul almost anticipates, anticipates some pushback. Uh, you know, even if the results aren't in your favor, if you lose, you might say, wouldn't that be a better run outcome in the long run? And literally, when a case does go to the court, there's always a clear winner and a clear loser. And Paul is advocating that it's a whole lot better to lose in the eyes of your brother than to win in the court system. 
But it also seems in verse 8 that some of these so-called Christians were also taking advantage of others in the church. And that certainly is, is not a good thing. And why would any brother even want to do that to a fellow believer? I don't, I don't know. But there are several things that are clear in these first eight verses. First, uh, Christians aren't exempt of having disputes with each other. Uh, that's, we see that even today. Um, but how these disputes or these differences are handled will have an impact and uh, on the reputation of Jesus Christ. And then thirdly, the church or the brotherhood is the best place to bring resolution to these disputes. Um, it's far better than any other way. And then along with that, or another point, if you will, is the secular court system is a very poor way for Christians to resolve conflicts. So just in a nutshell, I think that that's what Paul is trying to address here. Uh, clearly, it was a problem, and he wanted them to change. Uh, but again, there's not, uh, not disciplinary action invoked in relation to this, but rather just a change of behavior. <clears throat> the second issue is that of sexual immorality. And we find that in verses 12 through 20. And this issue seems to be, Paul seems to be addressing a more of a um, general attitude or mindset in the church. Back in chapter five, Paul confronted a very specific situation that required immediate disciplinary action. Um, and the issue, obviously, with disputes that we were just talking about was there was obviously several issues that he had in mind that he was giving guidance on. But this admonition um, on sexual immorality seems more broad and general as he's addressing all the believers in Corinth about sexual immorality. As I've mentioned previously, Corinth was the sin city of the first century. The attitudes about sexuality, along with the permissiveness in that culture, rivals that of a modern-day Las Vegas or Amsterdam or Bangkok, the, those cities that are known for that. Prostitution in Corinth was common in the pagan temples and was considered part of their worship. And so there was a public acceptance of all kinds of sexual promiscuity that was normalized, uh, that normalized this kind of sinful behavior throughout the city. Some of the Corinthian Christians that converted from this kind of an attitude and environment apparently did not immediately abandon that thinking or mindset. Um, that was clearly evidenced in chapter five um, with a man that in their church that was living in an incestuous relationship. In general terms, it seems that the Corinthian believers were more permissive about their acceptance of sexual immorality than they should have been. They had a distorted attitude that if someone desires or craves something, it's okay to fulfill that desire because of their freedom in Christ. 
In verses 12 and 13, Paul makes it clear that our appetites are not to control or dominate us. And they certainly aren't a good barometer of what is right and wrong. And he also makes it clear that just because something is legal or accepted in, a in the broader culture does not make it wise or beneficial to believers. Um, just for an example today, you know, just because abortion and gambling are legal, that in no way makes those acceptable actions for believers. And then he also introduces or uh, he uses introduces an analogy here that he uh, comes back to repeatedly in the rest of the letter um, or an illustration, maybe it'd be another way. And that's the illustration of the human body and the body of Christ, the church. We see this picture used extensively in chapters 12 and 15. Here in chapter six, Paul is uh, using the term body almost interchangeably between our physical body and the spiritual body of Christ. And in doing so, he brings and he sheds remarkable clarity on the types of, of lasting damage and the impact of sexual immorality to both the individual as well as to the church body. And it's easy to assume that this admonition to the Corinthian believers is not a factor in our churches or our church or churches today, but to assume that is also to believe a lie, a lie very much that Satan would like us to continue believing and allow him to continue his destructive work among us. In the nearly 25 years that I've been a pastor, I have firsthand knowledge and direct involvement with situations both in this congregation and other similar churches regarding a number of these types of, of issues. Um, for example, pornography. Um, that is a widespread problem in our culture, and it's certainly not isolated from our churches. And it's far more prevalent today than it was when I was growing up even when I was exposed to pornography at a, a young age of 12 or 13 years of age. Um, and that had an impact on me as well. Uh, so pornography, and that's not limited to men either today. Uh, in the past, it was often uh, assumed that this was primarily an issue with men, but that's not necessarily the case today. Uh, the premarital sexual relationships, um, adulterous relationships or affairs after marriage, same-sex attractions, sexual abuse. Those are all things that I have interacted with as a pastor in the last 25 years. So this is not something that is uh, unique to the Corinthian church. Um, and it's something that's still ongoing today. And the results, the consequences of these sinful behaviors are devastating. Uh, brains are scarred and imprinted with images that are almost impossible to erase through pornography. Marriages are ruined or severely damaged. Uh, relationships are destroyed. Diseases are contracted. Trust is violated and broken. 
And I have to wonder how much the body of Christ has been damaged as a result of individuals recklessly following their own passions and lusts. And then I have to wonder how much more of this sinful activity is still hidden and has not been exposed to the light of God's truth and is still negatively affecting the church. Paul states here that sexual immorality is probably the most destructive and damaging sin there is. It damages the individual, but then it also causes collateral damage to others. And given that we're created in the image of God, sexual immorality damages that divine design like nothing else does. It's an outright rebellion against God and his design for our physical bodies. And while there's forgiveness and redemption available for all forms of sexual immorality, there's also consequences that will follow that person the rest of his life. And there's consequences for concealing the sin, which I believe is probably even far greater. <clears throat> so Paul tells the Corinthians to flee sexual immorality. Don't dabble in it. Stay far away from it. Put distance between yourself and those temptations. Ask for help. Ask God. Ask others. And if you failed, God does forgive. He will forgive. However, I found personally that it helps to confess those sins to a brother or a sister um, and for married people other than your spouse, somebody that cares about you. God does forgive the sin, but your brother or sister will help you hold help hold you accountable. So then he wraps up this section um, of the second part of these problems by reminding each of us that we're walking temples of the Holy Spirit. So now thinking about what's the common thread here. As I read, reread, meditated on this chapter over the last several weeks, I started noticing something that kind of throughout this chapter, but it also starts in chapter five. And this common thread is that mankind, we as humanity, have a natural tendency toward um, gaining what we want at the expense of others. And that's a thread that we see through the last chapter as well as, as these two things here. It's doing whatever we can, whatever we uh, want, beca because we want something. Getting what we want, regardless of the cost to others. Putting that in a, a few other terms that probably are not as um, pleasant, or, but this is the thread that I see, is that it's really a thread of selfishness greed and covetousness that ties all of these together. The man in the incestuous relationship insisted, insisted on continuing regardless of the negative impact on his natural and spiritual family. Those going to court to settle disputes or file lawsuits were doing so in the belief that they could get what they believed was rightfully theirs. But at what cost? A broken relationship with a brother in the church? And then sexual immorality is really individuals behaving in such a way as to satisfy their own lustful thoughts and desires 
with no regard for the damage that it's causing others in their lives, their spouses, their children, their friends, their parents, their church family. And so the lesson is really quite clear. The underlying attitudes and desires in all these situations was not unique to this group of believers at this time. These attitudes and motivations are probably in all of us. Now, some of us do a better job of concealing them than others, but and God can and does redeem them. But as long as we are living in our sinful bodies, I don't know that we will ever be for completely free of the temptation of these sinful desires. And Paul makes it clear in both chapters 5 and 6 that what individuals in the church choose to do includes the passions I choose to pursue, the choices I make, the attitudes I carry, the sacrifices I'm willing or not willing to make, the selfishness I act on, the covetous thoughts that I dwell on. All of these, for each one of us, will have an impact on the body of Christ, either for the positive or for the negative. In chapter 5, Paul used the analogy of leaven, a little leaven, leaven of the whole lump of dough. Um, and a little unrepented sin will affect the entire church body. In this chapter, Paul used the picture of substituting our natural body with that of the body of Jesus, the church, in gaining a perspective of how destructive sin can be and is. It does far more damage than just to myself. So the common thread that I see in, in this is that we all have a tendency to work so hard to get what we want, what we desire, and often to the point that we end up damaging those around us in the process, and especially the body of Christ. And so this thread of selfishness, of greed, of covetousness, destroys so many. And so I guess a challenge is what we do individually does impact the church. It will impact the church. Whether our actual actions are known by others or not, it does have an impact on the church. <clears throat> now shifting gears a little bit, um, there, in the course of this chapter, like I mentioned earlier, Paul asked 13 questions. Some of them are rhetorical. Uh, others are meant to generate uh, consideration. But what I find interesting as I was reading this is that nearly half of the questions have something in common. They begin with the statement, do you not know? Or, yeah, they begin that way. <clears throat> And these questions project that the answers to these questions should be obvious. And they almost carry the sense of incredulity that the Corinthian believers may not know the answer based on their actions, or that their actions are certainly not in alignment with what these they should conclude from these questions. So I just want to briefly take a look at these things that we should know um, and, and just consider these a little bit uh, in this chapter as well. <clears throat> so 
the first two are in verses two and three. It says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And do you not know that we are to judge the angels? I did not put a lot of thought or energy into deciphering exactly what this means. But in essence, I believe that he is uh, reflecting on uh, some of the verses that are given throughout the Old Testament or in the Old Testament at several times and also even in the New Testament. Uh, for example, like in Daniel 7, 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The idea that the kingdom is given to the saints and there's judgment that goes along with that. And then also in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the world... When the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I don't understand what this all means, but in the context of these first eight verses, it seems that Paul is emphasizing if the saints, if believers will ultimately judge the world, why would you go to the world to have them judge or to settle disputes among yourselves? Um, to me, that's, that's the essence of what he's, uh, the point that he's making here, uh, in relation to that, that, that Christians are in a superior position to make good choices and to judge fairly than, than an unredempted, uh, than those that are unbelievers and so forth. And so I believe that that's what he is, uh, what he's implying here. And then in verse 9, uh, <clears throat> do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? There's three verses that I did not even really allude to between the two problems that Paul addressed that seem somewhat unrelated, and yet they bridge the gap between the two. And the, it's also, uh, this is a list, the first one was found in chapter 5, of sinful lifestyles that will not inherit eternal life. He specifies that they are not to be deceived. Choosing to intentionally believe something different than that which is clearly stated. Um, so many people today, many modern day so-called Christians, simply choose to disregard clear scripture like this, these verses to salve their conscience by stating that they simply believe something different than what is clearly stated. Um, that's deception if there's, um, if there ever was. Um, he is, Paul is stating in these three verses that literally the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now he gives a list of a number of things that are in the, uh, specifically, but unrighteousness is not limited or confined to this list. Uh, there, it goes far beyond that, but this is examples of the types of things that are unrighteous and that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then when you look over these terms, the sexually immoral, the idolaters, homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. 
as I look over that list, I mean, you might not see it for as clearly for each case, but I again see that thread of gaining what I want at the expense of others woven throughout this, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the swindlers. That's what it's all about. While it's stated clearly that these types of people who live in that sinful lifestyle will not um, have eternal life, the beauty is that God does forgive. He forgave the Corinthians who had lived these kinds of sinful lives, and he forgives us today as well. And the reality is that we can be washed, sanctified, justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, just like the Corinthian believers were. The Corinthian believers had lived those kinds of lifestyles, but they had been forgiven. And uh, the same is certainly um, true for us today. And I find it interesting, there's not many places in Scripture, but we see the Trinity uh, in these few verses here, uh, or in this verse as well. The Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. And uh, it's just neat to see how that all works together. And the reality is we can be transformed. We no longer have to live in the bondage of these those sinful desires. The next uh, there's two more in verses 15 and 16. It says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And then in verse 16, do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? Um, kind of looking at these together, there's one question, there's an additional question inserted between these two questions in the text. And that question is, shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. And so here Paul is again taking the language of the human body and shifting it or, um, yeah, shifting it to what that looks like in the, to the body of Jesus Christ, the church, to simply emphasize the points that he's trying to make here. And he's, he's stating that a sexual relationship is not neutral or merely physical, but there's a much deeper and a spiritual aspect that unbelievers simply choose to ignore. But it doesn't change the reality. What you do with your physical body is equivalent to what you're doing to the body of Jesus Christ. And that's just a good, a good way for us to, uh, to think about that. And then the last one, the sixth thing, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? What a stunning word picture. Our physical bodies are inhabited by the Holy Spirit, sent there by God himself. And if we're inhabited with a third person of the Trinity, why would we desire? Why, why are we even tempted to violate him with our sinful actions. I don't really know except that we must be deceiving ourselves as if and telling us that he's not really dwelling in us because if that reality was really there, we wouldn't sin, we wouldn't want to sin. Solomon's temple was built 
to exacting standards to meet the requirements of God before the Shekinah glory was revealed, giving his approval and showing that his presence was there in that space. Um, that same God in the form of the Holy Spirit is dwelling in all believers. And to me, that's just an incredible, blessed uh, reality that we all have. So then Paul concludes this chapter with two powerful sentences, uh, as stated in the English Standard Version. Other translations have some variation of this sentence structure um, and so forth. But the English Standard Version concludes with these two sentences. You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. We are not our own. And even as I'm concluding this message here this morning, I, this is a very appropriate title for this chapter and for this sermon. We are not our own. The common thread that we saw through these uh, last two chapters of gaining what we want at the expense of others is totally eradicated when we live in terms of this statement. We are not our own. Life is about so much more than myself. Jesus talked often about denying ourselves. To deny oneself is to put oneself to death, to die to one's own ambitions and desires in order to surrender ourselves to the directions, to the instructions from our captain, from our master. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. Jesus died to redeem each one of us and the entire world from the power and the grip of sin. We were redeemed, purchased to free us, but we have nothing apart from this redemption by Jesus. And because of that reality, because we were purchased, because we were redeemed, we are not our own. We were bought with a very high price. Jesus gave his life to purchase us. Why then wouldn't we live a life and make choices each and every day that glorifies, that magnifies, that refocuses, puts the focus on the God who loved us enough to redeem us rather than pursuing our own things. And why would we choose to live sinful lives that only ends up bringing shame and reproach on both ourselves, on the church, and on God? We are not our own. How we live our lives matters to God. How we live our lives will have a direct impact on the body of Christ. How we live our lives is actually planting seeds that will bring a harvest, either a harvest of blessing or a harvest of regret. But in the end, we are not our own.